What advice would you give that person today if you were 25 years old? Keep getting skills. Keep developing more skills, no matter what they are, whether they're writing, communication skills, social skills, sales skills, problem-solving skills. Because in the end, really, when I went to architecture school, uh, you learn to be a problem solver. And you learn to communicate and you learn to have thick skin because you have to go through critiques or people tell you your designs are crap and you have to recover from that and get over it. So you have to be resilient. You have to be creative. You have to be adaptive. And, uh, and you have to constantly push yourself to learn new things and try new things and not be afraid of doing it and not being afraid to fail. Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of D.C. Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Happy New Year and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear on Icons of DC Area Real Estate, please subscribe at coenterprises, C-O-E-E-N-T-E-R-P-R-I-S-E-S dot com forward slash podcast, and you will be able to link into all the episodes and also the recent webinar that I did in December. For my first episode in 2021, I am honored to present Len Forkus, whom I describe as a renaissance man, as he has founded two companies, Milestone Communications, his main job, and HopeCam, his nonprofit company. He's competed in extreme athletic events, including over 100 marathons, ultra marathons, the extreme bike race, Race Across America, and several uh, mountain climbing ventures, including most recently in Antarctica for three weeks. He is also a speaker now traveling around the world to raise capital for his nonprofit company, HopeCam inspiring people with some of his uh, leadership learnings with his athletic events and dealing with his uh, son's cancer. To call Len accomplished is a major understatement. Len offers a brief description of his background leading into a story about his career and the, the milestone communication to company development, his son's cancer, which led him to found HopeCam, and his marvelous feats of human endurance, all leading to his many life lessons that he shares at the end. This will be an episode you will not want to forget. So without further ado, here is Len Forkus. Welcome, Len, to the podcast. Appreciate you joining me today. Thank you, John. What I'd like you to do, Len, is talk at a high level about your current roles at at Milestone Communications, HopeCam, which is your nonprofit that you founded, and your personal initiatives, including your spectacular endurance athletic feats beyond these others, if anything else, just at a high level, if you could. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, John. I'm honored that you asked me to be part of your podcast, and thank you, thank you for uh, you know inviting me. No, I mean to answer uh, the question. My day job it's a company I started 20 years ago called Milestone Communications. We build and own cell towers. Uh, we've been doing it for 20 years. We also manage uh, rooftops and other tower assets like uh, water tanks, telecommunication towers, mostly owned by uh, municipalities, electric cooperatives, and so forth. So we have hundreds of those assets. And then we also have kind of a unique model where we partner with municipalities and property owners throughout the country to bring cell towers to their real estate that will then generate a recurring revenue for them. Uh, and so we, we build the towers at our capital, uh, we manage the assets, and then we lease them to wireless companies like Verizon, T-Mobile, and so forth. So, so that's kind of you know, what I'm doing day to day. As you mentioned, I transitioned from real estate. There was a time for many years I did a little bit of both when uh, I was partnering with Peter Melmet. But for the most part, it's been kind of my singular focus for pretty much the last 10, 12 years. Uh, it's a great business. And uh, you know, I'm having a great time with it. I've got a, a team in Reston, Virginia, although right now we're all working from home. But uh, I've got a great team and we work in... Uh, from Delaware uh, all the way down to Florida. We have, you know, 60, 70 partnerships with municipalities throughout those regions, and it's been a really great business. You've also founded uh, HopeCan. Talk just a very brief moment about that. We'll dive in yeah. mm-hmm. later on. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, in 2002, my son, Matt, who was nine at the time, he's 28 now, but he was diagnosed with leukemia. It was in January, and he couldn't go back to school because they suppressed the immune system for these kids, so they're very much at risk of getting illness if they go to school. And I could see how lonely it was for him to be isolated from the people that meant the most to him. Something that a lot of kids in the world, in the United States particularly, are are experiencing right now is the loneliness of being separated from their peers. And uh, so I was able to convince uh, Fairfax County Public Schools to let us put a webcam in his classroom back in 2002. There was no Skype, no Zoom, FaceTime, none of that stuff existed. But we persevered through it and we got it done. And it made such a difference in his outlook to know that he hadn't been forgotten, that those kids in his class cared about him and were following his progress through his treatment. And, uh, and when eventually he was able to go back to school in September, the transition was so much more seamless because every one of those 24 kids in his third grade class saw what happened to him in real time and they could relate to it. And so when he went back to school, he still had a couple more years to go of treatment. But when you went back, I realized that we had really discovered something that was unique. And go figure, here we are 18 years later, and now it's second nature, you know, connecting on webcams like we are right now. But back then, it wasn't an easy thing. And I've been blessed to have been surrounded by great donors, many of which are people that most likely have been interviewed by you or been, you know, watching this podcast in the real estate community. And uh, we've grown it. Uh, we've helped almost 3,000 kids in every state. Each year, we connect you know, between four or 500 kids a year. Most of them come from St. Jude, who are very poor kids that can't afford the tablets or the internet mm-hmm. and so forth. And uh, we want to help more kids, and we're continuing to grow. And so that's been a very, very rewarding part of uh, my life, is to be part of that organization and, uh, and, and its impact. And then the other area that I'm focused on, too, is I'm also the chair of the Foundation for Fairfax County Public Schools. I've been on the board for many years, and I'm the chair now. And, uh, and we have 240,000 kids in the school system, but believe it or not, 60,000 kids live below the poverty line in Fairfax County. We have more kids in Fairfax County at that level than the entire school system of the District of Columbia. And so I've got a wonderful board and great leadership to help support those children. We serve 60,000 meals a day right now during COVID to feed those kids 
Wow. We're giving them free Wi-Fi. Again, giving them a lot of the resources, the school supplies, and the connectivity and matching with mentors to help them make it through this terrible period. But also, we have 2,000 homeless children in Fairfax County. We provide them you know, resources for them to make their lives easier. So, so that's another element of uh, contribution that I feel very fortunate to be able to serve in my own community where I live in Vienna, Virginia. And we'll dive into this further, but you're also a phenomenal athlete and accomplished amazing feats, which we'll get into a little, little, little bit later. So, and you also sleep a very short period of time each night, which I want to also talk about because no one can do what you've done unless their hour, their day is longer than typically 16 <laughs> hours that some of us have. I mean, I've been reading books about sleep lately and most people say, well, you know, Seven to nine hours is what you should get. You told me in the past, and we'll talk about it maybe, is that you've averaged maybe four to five hours a night, which to me is amazing. So we could talk about that further. But before we do that, I want to go back to in the Wayback Machine here and get your uh, your story, you know, where you came from and how you got to D.C. and where you grew up and what uh, your influences were from your parents that lead you to do the phenomenal things you do today, Len. Yeah, yeah. Well, not very remarkable, John. I mean, you know, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, in a suburb uh, just west of the city. Um, I was one of four kids. I was the second oldest. My dad was a self-employed salesman, never graduated high school, uh, joined the war at 17 years old and fought in Okinawa. He operated a Higgins boat in the Battle of Okinawa in the Navy. So my dad was always my hero. But uh, always hustled and always uh, found a way to provide for his family. But he became a, a salesman, an independent salesman. So he always was his own boss his whole life. You know, my mom, you know, worked in the uh, assisted living elderly community, raising four kids. And, you know, I mean, I was, like I said, I, I was really blessed with a very supportive family and brothers and sisters and great neighbors. And, and uh, the one thing that kind of, you know, I always worked. I always enjoyed working. Uh, I always enjoyed sports. You know, I played, you know, football in high school and always played baseball or I was a speed skater. And, you know, so I was always active. We were always doing things physical. And, yeah, I mean, you know, I still have friends back back in Cleveland that I visit. And my mom and my sister still live there and, uh, you know, feel very, you know, very, very blessed. I went to college in, in the Indiana at Ball State University. Uh, I wanted to study landscape architecture. Because I was just fascinated with the idea of being able to have an impact on the built environment mm-hmm. uh, by b- becoming a designer. And uh, I got accepted to the program, very tough program to get into, and, uh, and spent you know, five years in Muncie, Indiana, just, out, just north of Indianapolis. And again, it was a, a wonderful experience. I made some phenomenal friends, got some great skills, had good internships in the summer. I was able to work in Scotland as an architect. One summer, got an internship there, and uh, and then graduated and uh, and came to Washington D.C. working for a company called EDAW. EDAW was one of the top landscape architecture firms in the, in the in the world for that matter. And I worked for a guy named Joe Brown, who's a very very uh, well known ULI member. Excuse my my puppy in the back there. So, uh, but anyways, uh, yeah. So uh, so I worked for Joe and uh, in Alexandria, Virginia. I landed in Alexandria because it was the first job uh, I could find in the recession. I graduated in 1982, and uh, there were not a lot of jobs in 1982. Interest rates were in the high 20s, and uh, I interviewed all over the country to, for different, you know, different firms in California and Colorado and New England, and uh, and the best opportunity came in Alexandria. So I moved to Alexandria, Virginia, 
and started working there. And um, I was very fortunate uh, to have worked on some amazing projects, but the most fortunate part for me was I got introduced to a guy named John Forstman, who was a real estate developer. Mm -hmm. I had developed office parks, shopping centers, and, uh, and he took a liking to me and I worked on a lot of his projects. And uh, I realized that, um, you know, I was really much more attracted to why we were doing what we were doing, you know, rather than just go do the design and do the layout sure. plans. I really wanted to know more about, you know, why are we building this project and where's the money coming from and why did we pick this property? And so that's what prompted me to go at night to get my MBA at American University to start to get some of the, the tools that I would need to be able to understand the finance, understand marketing and communication and so forth. And that's kind of how I made the transition from, you know, from high school to college to coming to Washington, D.C. Interesting. So working on Forstman's uh, land development situations, you said, hmm, how do these deals work? <laughs> yeah. Did you sit with him at all? Was he a good mentor to you to, to, as far as thinking that through? Or were you yeah, purely he, focused he on a mentor the land? And a friend. He became a mentor and a friend and a great sounding board. And then about, you know, after, after about three years of working for EDAW, I saw a, uh, an ad in the Washington, Washington Post for a company called Oxford, and they were looking for a development associate. And so I applied for it while I was about halfway through my MBA at American. And uh, I got an interview with a guy named Bernie Lubsher. So I remember this. I'm in his office over at Oxford's office, and he, and he said, he got on his desk a stack of resumes, so like, you know, eight inches high. And he said, you know, you're, you're just one of, you know, hundreds of people to apply for this job. And he said, uh, you know, what do you think about that? I said, well, Bernie, you don't have to look anymore. I'm your guy. You don't have to look at any more of those resumes. You throw those all away. I'm the guy you want to hire. And, uh, and, and I was fortunate to work with Tom Mizzuto and Julie Smith and Richard Smith and Richard Perlmutter and a whole group of folks that are very, very well known. Richard Bowles. John Slide. Very, very successful, successful people. And, and so uh, they, they hired me. I, I, you know, I was a big gamble, you know, a landscape architect. I mean, I didn't know anything about the real estate business other than what I had done from the design perspective. But mm -hmm. they, took a, they, they took a chance on me. And Tom Zuda took a chance on me, of which I will always, always be grateful. That's great. So uh, you were there for, what, two, three years? At, at about two years. And then Bob Packwood changed the tax laws. And yes. uh, the whole syndication business came to a grinding halt. And right. uh I remember John Slidell laid me off and he felt worse than I did. <laughs> so he was such a wonderful guy. And both Richard Smith and I both got laid off on the same day. And he went to Elmcore and I went to Winchester Homes. He learned right. he, he continued on the apartment business. And then I worked for Peter Burns and uh, Rick DeBella. And, uh, right. and I, became a land, I became a land developer inside of a home building operation. So I learned the home building side of the business, learned the land development side of the business, bought land, subdivided it, rezoned it, and so forth for, uh, for Winchester Homes. And uh, I felt very fortunate that here, you know, I was a landscape architect now, understood the multifamily business. I'm now understanding the home building business. I'm understanding the land acquisition, the master plan community business, because Winchester Homes built big projects, not just for their right. own. They sold properties, retail, multifamily, and others. And, uh, and so, yeah, I was very lucky to work with a, a wonderful team under Rick's guide, and uh, he was one of my favorite bosses. And, uh, but at the same time, I still kept in touch with my Oxford friends and my EDA friends. And what happened with Winchester Homes was the recession hit in the 90s, early 90s. And I was just right. bored because there was nobody who was buying homes. And there was really not that much to do. And they were very happy to inventory me for the next cycle. But uh, 
I had connected with Richard Perlmutter, who had just joined a company called South Charles Realty, which was Maryland National Bank's workout unit. Right. And he said, come on up to Baltimore and look at what we're doing. And uh, I could see that it was such a different experience. And they offered me a job. And uh, so you know, I went from you know, commuting to, you know, to Fair Oaks to commuting to Baltimore from my home in Alexandria. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I worked there for five years. And uh, mm-hmm. Richard handed off all the land development projects that they had. There were about a dozen of them. And including Milestone, which was a 900-acre master plan community. And so eventually we were able to sell off most of the other properties. And then um, we focused on getting, you know, dealing with the Milestone asset. And that's kind of how I kind of really settled into the, that, end, that side of the business. When did you join ULI, Len, out of curiosity? I met Fred Kober in 1991 uh-huh. as I was just uh, at Winchester Homes and leaving, going toward South Charles Realty. And I had lunch with Fred, and uh, I said, Fred, I, wanna, I don't want to just join. I want to be part of it. I want to help. He said, you know anything about membership? I said, no. He said, okay, congratulations. You're now our membership chair. <laughs> so I became the membership chair of Eli Washington yes. uh, at the age of 33. And, uh, and then from there, you know, I did uh, the Millennial Conference. We had a Millennium Conference in 1999, and then eventually was able to, you know, grow with that organization. They gave me a lot of, a lot of trust. And eventually, you know, became more involved with ULI as the chair of ULI Washington. So I was doing this. So that was that was right around you know, the late '90s when I met you, early mid '90s, and then um, and then just to, just to cap off the career path, I, I made the transition from South Charles Realty, which had done a great job of you know divesting most of the assets, and uh, was able to transition from uh, being an employee of the bank to becoming a consultant because they had to get rid of they had to reduce their overhead. But they still had many more years to go on Milestone. So effectively, they, I, I converted my termination notice into a consultant contract and managed uh, Milestone for two more years, finishing up the project. And that allowed me to be able to have a base salary. So for the first 40 hours a week, I worked on Milestone projects. For the next 40 hours a week, I worked on buying and developing <laughs> and properties. And I'm not making this up. I literally bought my first, I got my first contract signed with a deposit from three credit cards of $30,000. And that's how I started my, my company was uh, borrowing the money for the security deposit and then uh, taking it through the zoning process. And then eventually subdividing it and developing it and then selling off parts of it. And so that's kind of how I started my, my real estate company. And that was back in 1996. It was, you know, pretty risky. I had a young kid, young son, and uh, just bought a new house. And, uh, sure. but, uh, but you know, it, it felt good. And, uh, the guys at FICA, Chuck Irish and uh, John Amatetti, let me. They gave me a ten by ten office next to the kitchen in the back of their <laughs> their office in Greensboro Drive, and so for two years I hold up there, and then eventually I was able to to you know move to another building and, and start the real estate business. Well, I yeah, I remember transition. you and I sat down in Bethesda, I believe it was Barnes and Noble, it was a bookstore. We had coffee, and you had a business plan that you were you laid out in front of me. And it was about that time. It was late nineties and you were either raising capital or trying to figure out how you're going to raise capital for the big venture that you were planning, which was the, the communication cell tower business. I don't know if you remember doing that, but we, I, do. we, I remember I thought you, you thought I was crazy. I think you're personally right. <laughs> but, uh, what happened was this. Here's what happened. So the, the market obviously in 2000 kind of, kind of got, a, got a little funky with the dot com bubble. 
But also at that same time, there was so much uh, growth in uh, communications and technology. And uh, I met a guy named Tam Murray. Tam Murray was a very, very successful real estate broker with Smithy Braden, one of the top brokers. And uh, I met him through another friend named Kevin Reynolds, who's the president at that oh, time. I don't care. Cardinal Tam. And he said, go talk to Tam. He's building these cell towers. I, I visited my brother-in-law in Phoenix and saw a cell tower that had been built on a high school football field. And mm-hmm. you could hardly even notice it. It blended in so well. And I thought, wow, that's a really good design solution for a really ugly piece of infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And so I sat down with Tam at breakfast in Silver Diner. And I said, Tam, I said, can you, what can you tell me about this business? And he walked me through it. He said, it's a vertical real estate business. And these assets flow cash, just like an office building, except the tenants are rare. There's only a few of them. But once they sign up and they, they go on your tower, they pay rent for many, many years. It escalates at a good rate. And it's as secure as a bond, uh, as a government bond. And he said, so it's very good long-term cash flow. They're hard, they're hard to get approvals to build these towers because no one wants a proliferation of them. So if you can get the entitlement uh, to build them, you know, I like, I like high barrier to entry industries where not anybody can compete with you without a lot of pain. I found that always to be true in real estate is that you can find locations that have are impossible to get that take a lot of resources and a lot of work and a lot of risk. Then those tend to end up being the things that you want to own over the long term. And so that's why I was attracted to the wireless technology business. So at the same time, I was still doing real estate. I started doing the towers. And then after having developed Milestone, I worked very closely with the Montgomery County Public Schools. We developed an elementary school site for them. So I got to know the head of facilities and the school system, the parks, Maryland National Capital Park and Planning. I got to know those folks because we dedicated hundreds of acres of park property. We renovated a historic house called the Waters House and then gave it to them. So I developed these really comfortable relationships working with uh, municipal leaders in schools and parks. And I thought, well, maybe if I could convince them to give me an exclusive right to build on their real estate. Uh, and in that way, instead of trying to guess where Verizon or T-Mobile wanted to go next. If I had all the school sites in Fairfax County, for example, I could offer those sites uh, under a revenue share model to the school. So if I build a tower, schools would get a percentage of the revenue. And that way I can, go to, I can go to the carriers and have something actually of value to them. Because in many instances, even back then when only a third of us had cell phones in 2001, I knew that the hardest to, the hardest to reach areas were in the residential communities where there's no place right. you can build a tower without really making people angry. And the schools and the high schools, they're big parcels, 50-acre parcels, and uh, there are plenty of places you can put them and, and blend them in. So that was my, that was my business, and I, I was successful at getting contracts with Frederick County, Fairfax County, Prince William County, and then eventually uh, grew to cover the entire region and then eventually uh, moved to Delaware and South and Carolinas and Florida. So that was the model, was to have one contract with one landowner that had between 30 and 200 properties, and then have a very strong value proposition for building on those properties. Of course, having to get their consent and then to design the solution, take it through the process and so forth. And that was when I was raising capital to do that. And I think that that first capital raise was a couple million dollars, but it was to build our first eight towers, which were in Prince William and Frederick County, Maryland. Right. So you've, you've maintained that model through your whole company existence. And it's interesting, the industry has exploded in a way, primarily in the public REIT space, it seems to me. 
why did you decide to stay in that lane and not expand out of that lane into more diversified? At one point, as I recall, you had approached shopping center owners and looking to do it on private, some private sites, at least shopping centers at the time. Talk yeah. about your thinking with regard to expanding your market at that time. Yeah, I mean, what I found was, so we did have several agreements in place with shopping center property owners. What we found was they were very problematic because um, they had very little available land. Mostly uh, every parcel, every piece of land they have is either open space or uh, parking space. And you can't take away parking spaces because it cuts into the FAR. And, uh, and then, you know, nobody wants to put equipment on their rooftop at a shopping center, single-story shopping center. And so it became really difficult. And then the other thing we found was a lot of our property owners we were talking to had multiple partnerships. So they had to get consent from their investors and their lenders. And the amount of revenue that we could generate for them was, was not as valuable, was very de minimis in, in light of the scheme of the scale of the assets. So we, we just found that, that it really became really very challenging to build on the shopping center sites at that time. And, uh, and plus we, we knew that there were, you know, thousands of municipal owners in the Carolinas and Florida and Mm-hmm. so forth, that it would be better for us to broaden our geography than try to go deeper into the public, into the private sector. And mm-hmm. so that was where we retained our focus is by just focusing on those other markets. And we've been very successful in the Carolinas and in western, uh, southwestern Florida in uh, being able to grow the scale of the business. We have now 60 partners. And also we took on electrical cooperatives. So we have Santee Cooper, which is the largest power company owned by the state of uh, South Carolina. We have all 300 of their substations, and we also ma- manage all of their transmission structure co-locations, and we also manage uh, over 40 uh, existing telecommunication towers where we have the rights to be able to put carriers on those towers and receive part of the revenue. So, so that's been part of our growth has been to focus on owners that have lots of uh, available assets, and so therefore we now are, are focusing on the private sector. We just signed a contract with Wash Reed, and now we're managing oh. all 40 of their rooftops, and we've got interest from many, many carriers, and we're also helping them manage some of the existing deals that have been done. So we hope to leverage, uh, prove ourselves to Wash Street and then be able to leverage that and be able to have a dialogue with, uh, with more property owners in Washington, D.C. area, because this is kind of our backyard. This is our niche. Sure. So we, we hope to grow that over time, but we want to first kind of, you know, really show that, you know, we can do what we say we can do by demonstrating that with Wash Street. So you had, when you got going, you had some struggles, I think, to try to educate the public on cell tower usage and locations, as I recall. And the public, the, some of the public sector people were a little skeptical of the idea as well. And I, at one point, it seemed to me you were, you know, at a crossroads, as I recall. Can you talk a little bit about some of the difficulties you had in, early on and how you overcame those issues? Well, I mean, there's no shortage of people that doubt science and doubt the uh, authority from the FCC, the FDA, the World Health Organization, the National Cancer Institute. There are a lot of people that despite the overwhelming evidence that shows uh, and is never not studied. I mean, the radio energy from wireless is studied every single day by every agency. So it's never static. It's always constantly being reviewed for impacts to, to our health. And in the 20 years I've been doing business, the concern of that has never gone away. I mean, from the day one to the day today, and then 20 years from now, there will always be people that believe that the energy from radio, radio energy from antennas and wireless communication causes harm to people. 
yet there's no credible evidence that shows it does. And so it gets a little disheartening sometimes, you know, when you're constantly fighting this, uh, this tsunami of, uh, of, you know, of negativity. Uh, so it takes working on our team is really hard. You have to have really, you have to have a really strong resolve, you know, because some people are very, very emotional about it. But uh, so that was part of it was, you know, I doubted, you know, my God, this is such an uphill fight. But in the end, really, I mean, again, every negative becomes a positive, as Ray Ritchie would say, is that the negative that, you know, makes it hard keeps other people from wanting to be in the business. Right. <laughs> and, exactly. Uh, I always tell my team, don't ever worry about getting negative press from uh, the community or negative press. People will say negative press is terrible for you. It's really not. Because negative, we persevere through all of it. We always, 90 Six percent of the time we prevail, and mm-hmm. uh, but only press we get is negative. So nobody ever talks positively about cell towers. So all our peers, all our competitors, all read all the negativity, and they say, "Why would we on earth would we want to build towers at schools and do what Forks is doing? The guy is crazy." Yeah, I'm crazy, you know. And nobody else wants to be crazy, which is nice. <laughs> it's nice to be crazy alone. And, uh, that's it's built in kind of uh, you know filters, but it's a great business, John. The assets have so much value because they're cash flow positive from day one. The tenants sign for five to 10 years. The only time a tenant comes off a tower is when they merge, like Sprint and T-Mobile merged. So there's going to be some turnover there. Mm-hmm. But for the most part, once they're on an asset, they don't ever come off, rarely come off. And they're constantly adding new equipment and updating their equipment. I mean, when I first started, there was no G. It was just wireless. <laughs> right. EG, and then I've lived through all the Gs, you know. And uh, every time the, the technology advances and gets faster and gets better, the equipment changes, the weight changes. So there's always opportunities for additional revenue as the carriers take up more capacity on the structures that we built and designed. And so it's a, it's a wonderful business, and uh, it's hard to get into it. But um, we've got 20, year, 20 years of relationships in this region and now expanding into the Carolinas and getting to know people in those areas, be, earning their trust, one day at a time. I mean, I like to say that we don't build towers. We build relationships. And the people we work with, they like our team. We're responsive. And that's the key, right, is having people on your team that, you know, intrinsically care about helping others get their network built, helping our landowners make sure that we build it in the right place. We don't disrupt the school or the park or the utility company. Mm-hmm. And we just, you know, focus on those things that we can control and uh, and deliver great service and deliver responsiveness and, uh, you know, being flexible and open and, and being good listeners. It's interesting. Uh, your competition in the business, I think, had more real estate costs than you do because you don't usually buy the property. You usually do it on some kind of a licensing or joint venture agreement with the, with the landowner there. Whereas, you know, American Tower and some of these other public companies, I assume, have to buy their properties is that the main differentiator between you and them as far no, as the, actually, your competition? No, most of them are leases. They lease How are they? Property owner. And okay. they lease them under fixed, under fixed rents, mostly, where we do okay. variable. So our early rent is much lower than typically the American Tower, but, but we share the revenue. So in, what they do is they, they sign a lease under a fixed rent, and then if they get a second carrier, it's, it's all positive cash flow. For us... We offer lower rent early, but yet if we were successful at having a tower be successful, our property owners get part of that benefit. And therefore, we become more aligned with our, with our partners, where we, it's more of a partnership because every time we win, they win. 
they're very eager to renew. They're make, they always make sure that we, if we need more space that we didn't plan for, they provide it. So it's very much, a, a, you know, a, an alignment, a strong alignment of interest. But more importantly, though, for us is that we want to continue to do more and more business with the same owner. And that creates more scale. And, uh, you know, I'm a big believer in you have to pay what's called a stupid tax whenever you do something new with a new partner or a new location or a new city. We just yeah. want to pay that tax once and then get repeat business. And that's why we like big school systems, big municipal, municipal governments, big utility companies, and so forth. But it's a, like I said, it's a great business. The multiples are, are very high on the exits. Our investors, we raise money through mostly uh, private placements. And our investors have about a seven to nine year window. So we've only sold three times in 20 years. Our investors are very long-term, you know, people that have vision. And so, but, but eventually they want their money back and we sell the assets to, you know, large companies. And Right. Do you leverage your, your properties or are they? Yeah, we have a little bit. Yeah, it takes a while to get the flywheel spinning where you have the cash flow because it takes, you know, a year to get the site ready to build. And then mm-hmm. once it's built, it takes a while to get the cash flow rolling. But, but yeah, we have uh, great credit facilities. CIT is one of our biggest lenders. And uh, yeah, so we put a little bit of that, but, but it's very, uh, it's not leveraged nearly as much as a real estate asset would be. So it's not long-term, but what you do is just, just to get the project built and stabilized and then you pay it off with equity pretty much, or, or is it, is it held through the life of the, of the tower itself? Yeah, well, it takes a while to get the asset. So there's a lot of upfront expense, several hundred thousand dollars before it actually can flow cash. Yep. And usually, you know, 12 to 14 months to get it to that point. And then it's like cash, and then you really uh, the cash flow really doesn't come in a scale in a, a lot of scale until you get the second tenant to come on the tower. But yeah, I mean, you know, we're the leverage is low; it's usually less than fifty percent, but right. the terms are good. And uh, you know, there's not every bank understands it, but uh, but yeah, it's a great like I said, it's a it's a great business. Do double digit returns for investors, and um, like I said, it's been been a great great business. They're always liquid. There's always consolidators that want to buy these assets. But again, our, our goal is to own them long enough to get the get the tenants seasoned, have a good strong portfolio, and develop superior returns for our equity investors and our property owners. It seems to me the market is exploding now with five G coming on the technology. Interestingly, my wife is the town manager of our community here, and you know, they looked into it about two years ago when, you know, Verizon and the carriers are trying to figure out how they're going to do it. It's interesting. The, the, apparently the, the radius for these towers, I guess, or antennas, however you want to put it, has to be pretty tight for 5G to work properly. Talk about the expansion of that and how that's going to impact everyone. I, I think anybody that uses a cell phone is going to need to understand this. <laughs> I would think. So explain that a little bit. Oh, absolutely. So uh, it just so happens on December 15th at 3 o'clock, I'm uh, giving a webinar uh, for George Mason University's real estate school on five. So for those of you who like to to be part of that, at gmu.edu, just go to the website, just type in George Mason webinar 5G, and uh, it'll pop up and you can register for it. I think it's like 10 bucks. It's really low cost. But but I'm going to, yeah, I've given a very similar uh, presentation to ULI at one of the national meetings just to talk about what 5G means and so forth. And no, it's, it's just so, so exciting. I mean, to see, to be, I'm so blessed to be, have, have discovered an industry that has all the components of good, solid real estate with a technology twist that always makes it interesting. I mean, 
in real estate, you're always worried about, uh, about where the cycles are mm-hmm. and where are you on the curve on your product type and are you exposed? Are you, uh, should you be doubling down? Should you be backing off? Should you be staying the course? Whereas in, in this industry, it changes every six months. <laughs> so it's constantly <laughs> going through iterations where there's a lot to do and nothing to do. But if you get bored, just wait, wait to half a year and it'll, something happens, something happens in the industry. I mean, most recently, the biggest impact was the merger of T-Mobile and Sprint. So we went from four carriers to three, which is not particularly, you know, pleasing. But the FDA, the FCC and the, um, the Department of Justice demanded that a fourth carrier replace Sprint, and that was DISH. And so now DISH is standing up a 5G network from scratch, and they're doing it on the backbone of uh, the T-Mobile network. So they're using the T-Mobile network for the next several years until they can stand up their own network. And they acquired 10 million subscribers that were called Boost Mobile, which was Sprint affiliate. So, so, so Dish is super exciting to see what they're doing right now. And, uh, and they'll be deploying in 2021 and 2022 in a massive way. So that's exciting to see. But, but when it comes to 5G, I think a couple things, you know, just to kind of give you a little preview on what I'll be talking about on the 15th is that there's, there's three, there's three or four key elements of 5G. First of all, there's layers of 5G, depending on which part of the spectrum they're using. So there's a, a really super hyper-fast layer that travels very short distance. That's called the high band. Then there's the low band, which is almost like AM radio, which goes super far distance, but not particularly crystal clear. It's fast, but not as fast as you know the mid band or the high band. But you can get a 5G signal in a rural area. Um, with the low band spectrum, and it functions better than LTE. And then there's the mid band, which is uh, the bread and butter, which goes you know for a mile or two, and that's where the most of the 5G will be experienced by people that have devices that enable it. And when they designed the 5G network, they designed it in a way that uh, created uniformity. When 4G was developed, they developed it with two competing technologies called WiMAX and LTE. I kind of remember the days when we had Betamax and uh, VHF. <laughs> VHF, yeah. That's what happened with 4G. They had two, two different paths that the industries were focusing on, and there was winners and losers. And so the ITU, which is the United Nations International Technology Union, decided to have a process to be able to create the building blocks of the 5G design of the software and the network. And it took three years to do so, but in the end, it Last year, they came up with the standards for 5G so that all the manufacturers, Samsung, Nokia, and so forth, Huawei, could all develop the software and the hardware, the hardware and the technology to use that platform. And so, and the platform's really cool. It's, uh, it's 10 times faster, 10 to 20 times faster than 4G. So you're getting uh, fiber-like speed on your wireless device or better. It has a power consumption that's one-tenth of 4G. So mm. the phone will be able to, the battery will last much longer. And you can power devices in the field with a small solar panel that can be placed anywhere that will allow data capture in places that never could have been done before because it only requires a couple of watts to fire up a 5G device. And then the other thing is they wanted it to be compatible with hundreds of future types of devices. So if you've 
calculate how many types of wireless devices, if you go to a Best Buy or go to, I go online and buy every possible wireless device you can buy, every possible, whether it's a tablet or an iPad or whatever, a Fitbit, whatever. Okay. Add all those Watch. up. Yeah. Add all those up and then multiply it times 100. <clears throat> That's what 5G is designed for. It's designed to accommodate 100 times more devices that exist in the, eco- in the universe today. So what that does, and also latency, they designed the network so it would reduce latency by 90%. So if you had a 30 millisecond latency rate in your transmission, it would go to 3 milliseconds. And if you know a little about latency, you'll know that the, the lower the latency, the, the, uh, the faster the turn-on speed. So it's low latency, it's low battery power, designed to accommodate thousands of future devices that haven't even been thought of yet. And it's, uh, it's got uh, incredible connect, connection speeds. But the problem with 5G is we haven't really created a, the applications for it. So if you can imagine the way you should think about 5G is you imagine Waze or Uber. Or right. Uber Remember TomTom and Garmin's? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sure. Our windshield. Yep. Right. So those completely, those, all those technologies were built on the 4G platform. So the 4G platform had to exist, and enough people had to have smartphones that would connect to 4G for them to test out whether or not an idea like Uber would actually take hold. And so that's so. So you have to build enough of the infrastructure to allow for the innovation to to test it, see what it, what, could it, what it can do with it. Sure. That is where we are right now. Because right now, only 5% of us have 5G devices. But a year from now, more of us will. And eventually, all these chips and all the phones that are purchased will have the 5G chips on, along with the CBRS chip, which is another technology. And, uh, and so I think that the future is, is going to be really interesting to see what the community, the design community, can do on this really cool low latency, low power, device friendly, super fast highway. I mean, it's like the Autobahn, right? No one really knows how fast your car can go until the Autobahn, the gates opened and you could go drive it, right? So they're building the Autobahn right now and no one knows what's going to appear on it yet, but there's going to be some pretty cool things going to appear on the, on the wireless Autobahn and that's the 5G network. But in the meantime, 4G is still going to be functional for, as they layer it, it's going to, it took, when they introduced 4G, they didn't phase out 3G until like you know, years after 4G was prevalent. So yeah. 4G is not going anywhere. And by the way, 4G, by the way, can connect at 150 megs per second. So mm-hmm. 4G has a lot more legs left in it before it becomes obsolete with 5G. So make no mistake, there's going to be faster connectivity on 4G, 5G for everybody. We just have to see you know, what, it all, what it all means. What does it mean for your business? Well, I hope it means more towers. I mean, that's what we're seeing right now. More infrastructure, uh, more small cells, which we don't do because that's uh, you know more on the municipal side. Consumers have an insatiable appetite for broadband, wireless broadband. I like being in a business where that appetite never goes down. There's never a point where people say, okay, I'm good. My network's fast enough. I don't need to change anything. I'm fine where I am. Or, or Verizon says, we don't need any more sites. We're good. That'll never happen. That will never happen. So I love being in a business that <laughs> that. But uh, as real estate happens, there's a lot more people in the business. A lot more people have come in and compete with us. Competition. So, yeah. 
right? So that's one thing that never changes. And that's why from the standpoint of running and operating your company, you, also, you always have to have the service mentality, the relationships, the trust, the performance, delivering results, all the blocking and tackling everybody has to do in their business. You still got to do that. And that's how you differentiate on the quality and on, on the responsiveness and delivering a superior product with a great positive team of people. Well, we could get into the stats of your business, but I know that you have, I don't know how many thousand sites. And then I don't know how many, how many towers do you now uh, operate, Len? We need to look at our portfolio that we own, the portfolio we manage, three, four hundred. Mm-hmm. And you have several thousand sites that haven't been activated we have, yet. We have like 4,000 places where we have exclusive rights to build upon. Right. Uh, and right. So yeah, the key is to make sure that our customers are aware of those locations as they design their networks. We have placeholders mm-hmm. in places you know, all throughout the Carolinas mm-hmm. and Florida and Virginia and Maryland, Delaware, and so forth. Mm-hmm. So you see, keep just going to keep rolling with this thing and keep growing it. Uh, well, my, expanding son, it. my son, Matt, worked for Mill Creek for a couple of years, and then he started his own company, uh, making mm-hmm. healthy food, and now he's working with me. He still has his, 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 neck, his healthy food business, but uh, he's working for me now doing property management and asset management. And great. So, having a good time. I love uh, It's great having him on our team, and uh, he's growing, he's learning, and so, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's fun, John. I mean, you know, I, I love work, you know, and uh, you do. I look at guys like Tom Mazzuto. I look at guys like Bill Peterson. I look at guys like Bob Buchanan. Yeah. These guys, they just keep going. They just have so much energy. They just keep and going. They love to lead and love to, and they're so humble and they're so great. Ray Ritchie, you know, they're all great people and they're inspiring. I mean, and uh, so to me, the combination for me, John, is finding enough time to be able to do fun stuff, to, to do, to give back, to help my team grow, to help my business grow. I mean, I feel so blessed that I have the resources to, to be able to uh, choreograph all those things, be a good dad, be a good husband, be a good friend, be a good boss. And those, are my, uh, those are my idols. You know, those are the guys, you know, of course, my parents were obviously my idols too, but but I look at the people in our industry and in ULI, you know, I ran ULI for many years. I ran the district, I ran, I was the chair of the district council program for several years. Sure. Um, and just, there's so many amazing people in that organization. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, and, and I love my industry, the wireless industry. And so, I don't know. I mean, I just, I'm having fun. We're having a great time. COVID's kind of put a dent, a dent in it because we can't be together, but we found ways through this technology and others. We still get yeah. together when it's safe right now people are laying low right now because we're spiking but but i'm looking forward to the day when we can all you know begin to transition back you know hopefully sometime you know next year and to be able to travel more for business and uh and be able to reconnect with people face to face and uh and continue to grow those relationships and you know and and, and balance it all so let me let me spin back a little bit to what you talked a little bit about Hope Cam and how you how it started with your son and it's evolved now quite a bit. So talk about the evolution of Hope Cam, some of the things that you've done to support it personally. Yeah, so it's um, kind of a chicken and egg, right? You know, you got the right. you got the idea, but you have to pay for it. Right. So I, I learned how to pay for it by doing hard things. You know, like my first, the first thing I did was uh, I ran a 50 mile race 
called the GFK 50 in Maryland. And uh, it was the year we started Hope Camp. And I said to all my friends, I want to raise five grand and uh, I'm going to go run 50 miles. You know, can you support me by paying me a buck a mile, you know, or whatever. And, uh, and so I was able to raise $5,000 at first, first race. We bought five computers. We helped five kids. I went out and do that race seven times. Each time I raised more money. I started doing Ironman triathletes, triathlons. I did five of those. Every time I do one of those, I'd raise more money. Then we could hire a partner. Okay, hold on, Len. You you got to go back a little further than that. You got you don't just start a company in front of fifty miles without training and doing some athletic activities well, prior to that. When Matt was born, I ran the Marine Corps Marathon. And ah, I promise I'd never do that again. But uh, but when Matt got sick, I started exercising more just to cope with the stress of his illness, and so mm-hmm. I found comfort in in, in a grounding by going out and doing more biking, doing more running. I needed that for me. That was kind of how I coped with the stress of his um, recovery was by just exercising more. So I was able to convert that into a fundraising platform. And, uh, you know, like, for example, if I would have said, hey, John, will you buy a table at my gala? Sure, you'd do it, right? But when your gala came around, you'd call me right back, right? So there was always this reciprocity associated with fundraising that way. I thought, when I say, hey, John, I'm going to go run 50 miles, your answer is, I'm not doing that. Here's my money. You know, <laughs> I'm happy to give you. You're going to go do that. I'm good. So I found that over time, my friends would pay me to suffer. Okay. <laughs> and, the more, and then guys like David Flanagan would say, hey, what are you doing this year? What's next? You know, so I got the following of people that would continuously support me. And they would always ask me, what's the big thing next year? And so... I eventually got into ultra cycling. I, I did a 400 mile race in 24 hours in Florida. And that was the pivot point where I realized, wow, I can really do some really hard stuff. And, uh, and that's when I decided to do this race called Race Across America, which I did in 2012. And then again in 2017. And that was like, to me, what had happened. And I talk a lot about this in my leadership speeches is that I, we plateaued as an organization. We were happy helping kids in the region. We're helping 50 kids a year. And um, we were comfortable. You know, we had a good board. We did a 5K every year. I'd go out and do a race. I'd raise 20 grand, 30 grand. And then that was our budget, right? So, um, but I knew that we could take the charity to a larger scale. And I knew that we could help more kids in other parts of the country. But I wanted to do something that would really put us on the map. And so I signed up for this bike race called Race Across America. I qualified for it by doing that 24-hour race in Florida, right? We rode 400 miles in 24 hours because you can't just go just show up at the starting line. You have to qualify for it. And, uh, and I set a goal of raising 150,000 and I had a team of 11 people uh, that supported me because you're riding a bike 3,000 miles and you have to do it in 12 days. And they have cutoffs. So if you don't get across the Mississippi River by a certain date, you can't go on. So, but you have to cross the finish line within 12 days of the gun going off in San Diego. You finish in Annapolis, Maryland. And, uh, and I had a great crew of bike mechanics, massage therapists, drivers, navigators, paramedics. I mean, all these people that would help me stay on the bike 20 hours a day. And, uh, and when it was all over, I was able to finish. I won my division in my age group. I came in 10th place, and I raised uh, $350,000. And I wrote, I wrote a book about it, and uh, the book was about leadership and about team building and about mission because everybody on my crew – during those 11 days, believed in the mission. And the mission wasn't me. The mission was to raise enough resources, enough awareness to help more kids. And uh, we all were very focused on that mission. We honored a child every day. 
And so what happened was I was able to, through training and preparation and picking positive, unselfish people, I was able to build a really high-performing team that did ex- we did extremely well beyond our expectations. We won. And, uh, and so I gave lunchtime talks to my real estate friends over pizza and told them the story about how I did it. And I realized that there was a, there's a leadership book here about team building. And that's what the book about is about what spins the wheel. And so I wrote the book and I used the book as a platform to develop a, uh, a speaking sequence on it. And at first I started speaking for free and people would buy the book. And then I started charging 2,500 people bought the book, 5,000, 10,000, 15,000. I earned over a million in speaking fee revenue and book sale. All that goes to the hope camp. And so in doing so, through ULI and through all these other places that I, people, all word of mouth. I didn't do any advertising at all, all word of mouth. And uh, in 2017, I realized that I had spoken to over 100 companies, raised all this money, and I thought, well, if I do this race again, I'm going to try to call all these people that heard my story and ask them to sponsor me. And I set a big goal to raise a million dollars. And I got a lot of my teammates to come back. I trained for it. I did it again in 2017. Uh, We got to the starting line. We raised 800. We got to the finish line. We were at 950. And then over the course of the summer, the balance of the million came in. And I was able to take this platform that I developed on speaking about leadership and team building and mission-driven teams and then do a sequel, you know, with the race again. And then that, again, propelled the, 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 the charity to a whole new level now where we're helping not 200 kids a year. Now we're helping 500 kids a year. And we're writing grants. And we've got a much more sustainable revenue base. And we're finding resources in each of the cities and the markets that we're doing. We're helping kids. So we're getting very focused grants in San Diego, a very focused grant in Dallas, Texas, to help kids in that hospital. So we've been able to converse that God bless me, I don't have to ride again. I'll have to get on that bike again. But I was able to, we were able to leverage all those, all those connection points by helping all these kids throughout the country now to then create the engagement with the local foundations and the places where we're having the most impact in helping those children with cancer. And so to me, that's the real success story of Hope Camp is we went from, you know, how, how many times can Len run or ride his bike to now a, an organization that has four full-time people and is completely self-sufficient. We still have a board. The board raises resources. We still need to raise money through our, our 5K and through our gala, but we supplement it with the grant writing, and, uh, and it's just becoming something that's uh, getting better and better and better every day, which, you know, and I have very little to do with it. I mean, it's, so, it runs so well. Are you still traveling around doing, you know, speaking and doing that kind of thing? But it's a little hard to do that now, you know, because uh, right. Uh, I have given the talk on webinars uh, several times. Right. Mm-hmm. I don't charge for it. So I hope that we'll be able to do more of that when things get better. But I'm doing other things now. So now that I'm, I'm still doing lots of rides, I still run lots. I'm trying to run a marathon in every state. I've run over 50 marathons. A lot of them were, were doubles or triples. Or, you know. right. But I've run 20, 22 states so far. This year I ran five marathons. And uh, I was hoping to do more. Uh, but, you know, actually six marathons, but it's just all the races were canceled. So my goal is, is to finish that, to hit, hit, a, hit a marathon in every state. And every time I run a race, I dedicate it to a child, a Hope Camp child. I send them the medal. I send them the shirt. 
you know, and tell them, hey, when I was out there running, I, I was thinking about, you know, what you're going through. And it really helps me and it helps the kids. And it really keep me, keeps me connected to the kids we're serving. I've been doing a lot of mountain climbing. Um, I was fortunate enough to uh, climb Mount Vincent, which is the highest mountain in Antarctica. Oh. We, we climbed uh, with a good friend from Colorado and two other guys. Oh. But, uh, but a fun, funny thing happened after the climb. You have to take a, a, a plane. You, you, you fly on a jet from Punta Arenas, this is in Chile, to uh, a place called Union Glacier Camp, which is, has a blue ice runway where this Russian transport takes you there after four hours. And then from there, they have a small camp. And then from there, you fly a twin-engine plane to 7,000 feet above sea level at base camp. Mm-hmm. You summit and come back down, and then they pick you up and take you back. Well, everything worked out really well. The crew, our team worked out well. We summited, we came back, and then we were at base camp, and we were stuck there for 11 days. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Oh. And so I, I did a sketchbook, and I, I'm writing a book about it now, about the experience of uh, being a novice on this mountain with all these experienced people and all the stupid things that I did and the learning curve and all the things I had to adapt to and how far outside of my comfort zone I was doing this, this very challenging, physically demanding climb. But it's, uh, but it's inspired me to want to climb more, so I was successful at climbing Mount Elbrus, which is the highest mountain in Europe and in the Caucasus Mountains. I went to Aconcagua in South America a year ago. And unfortunately, I got a pulmonary edema, so I had to come down in a helicopter. So that was not fun. So I've learned a lot. I hope to go back to Aconcagua when they open again. This year it won't be open. But I'm climbing Denali, which is the highest mountain in North America, in Alaska, in June. And, you know, I hope to, you know, be able to do more climbing. And so I enjoy it. It's a wonderful sport and uh, great people and a little danger, but, you know, you, you train and you prepare and you surround yourself with good people. And so that's kind of my passion right now is to, is to do more of that. And, uh, and I'll always try to be open for new things, you know, that, you know, challenge me and mentally and physically and emotionally. And to me, that makes me feel alive. And, uh, but yeah, still, you know, be present in, with my family and my friends and like, my kids, my wife, you know, just continue to be present. What lessons have you learned from all these athletic adventures that you've had, Len? And how can you share that with the listeners? You're kind of your, I know you've written about in your book, but talk about what drives you to do all this. I mean, what internally, what, what gives you that, that fire to want to compete and, and beat the next hole and try to overcome you know, big challenges like that. Where's the fire come from for that? I don't know, John. I mean, I think that um, the one thing I've learned in, in riding 3,000 miles in 11 days is that your mind is way more powerful than your body. Oh. Your body can only go as far as your mind can go. I mean, believe it or not, we only use a small percentage of the capacity that we have. I think that you can physically do way more than you think you can if you're willing to prepare and put in the work. And it's all incremental. So I think if you look at all the people you've interviewed in all your interviews, they'll all say it all, none of it came overnight. It all happened incrementally, but they took incremental risks. They put themselves in uncomfortable positions. They scaled, but they were never 100% knowing what the outcome was going to be. But they, they were willing to take the risk and, and put it out there. And so I feel like I do that with my business, but also I feel like I do that with my life. 
is that you, you can't, I'm always trying to find where that boundary is, where I gather the knowledge to be able to go do something that I've never done before. So to me, that's the real turn on for me is to, is to put myself in places where I'm purposefully uncomfortable, but not so dangerous that it's, uh, it's stupid or extremely life-threatening. So I think that's the key is that having the, the mindset that I can, I can do way more than I think I can. And, uh, and to put the work in to do in- incrementally to do that. I think the other thing is just making a commitment. So I'll give you an example. When I decided to do Race Across America again in 2017, I had to tell 100 people I was going to do it again. I had to really just say it. And also in 2012, same thing. I had to say, I had to take a, to 100 people, I'm doing this race. It starts on this date. I'm going to do it. I want to, I need your help and, uh, and ask people for help. So be humble enough. To know that you, you can't do it alone, and they ask to support you, but you have to verbalize your goals because if you don't, then you can quit easy without any consequence. So you have mm-hmm. to build yourself into pre-committing to a particular goal that's hard, and then that gives you the resolve from the sheer embarrassment of saying I failed or I quit. You know, a lot of people would ask me during the bike ride, like on day seven or day eight, did you ever feel like quitting? I mean, of course. I'm riding through Kansas into a headwind for two straight days. People say, you ever feel like quitting? I said, yeah, like every minute I felt like quitting. But you can't think about it because I promised so many people I'd make it to Annapolis. What am I going to tell them? I got tired. The wind was too hard. And what am I going to tell these kids that I'm riding? Every day I rode for a different child with cancer. What am I going to tell them? Yeah, I didn't get a chance to honor you because, you know, my feet were hurting. Oh, by the way, I know you're going through radiation next week. So, you know. But my feet really hurt. You know, I was like, no way. So you have to like, you have to pre-commit, tell everybody. And then the other thing is, it's as simple as waking up in the morning and not hitting the snooze button. Figure out what time you want to wake up. Talk about sleep, right? And when you wake up, you go, you sprint to your next goal, which to me is always exercise. So I don't ever let myself decide if I'm going to go or not. Because I always lay all my clothes out, whether I'm biking or running or whatever, the night before, so when I wake up, I'm like the I'm like Batman getting into the Batmobile, man. I go right to right to the kit, <laughs> right on the bike, and out I go. And I don't even pause. And I think that that pause is what holds so much of us back. Oh, it's raining or it's too cold. I should have thought of that. I should look the weather last night. But you need pre-commit. Don't give yourself the choice. Just commit to it, and don't second guess yourself. And stop and try not to doubt yourself. The doubts always come, but block them out. I think I've got, I think the one thing that I, I think I, I, I do better than a lot of people is I just don't think too much. And it helps me. Because the more I, so, I, I think about stuff, I think about, wow, this hurts. <laughs> so I try not to think about it. Do you have a mindfulness practice at all, Len? I mean, do you kind of look at present, at present is present, and I'm on present. I'm not on past and I'm not on future. I'm on now pretty much. You have to be. Yeah. You have to be because doing those, these crazy endurance races and doing these climbs, right. you just got to put, if you're climbing up a fixed rope and you got a half mile or a mile to go, you're digging in your crampons into the ice, you're holding onto the rope and you're pushing yourself up. All you care about is that next step. That's all that matters. Oh, yeah. Step. You don't get that next step right, there's bad things happen. Stay sure. focused. Well, that. Yeah, I mean, when you you describe in your book one moment that it just blew me away, 
you were in the mountains of Colorado and you were going downhill at night, as I recall. You know, correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> you came to a curve and you were kind of semi dozing at the time and it just suddenly woke, woke you up. It's like, well, I better make this turn or I'm going to, I'm over the edge on this cliff. Am I right with that explanation? I, John, I cannot, it happened in the daytime actually. It was in, on the way to Durango. I cannot explain why I'm here today. There's no rational reason that would tell me why my eyes opened when they did. I literally was asleep on the bike oh. downhill at 9,000 feet above sea level, just <laughs> completely exhausted. And I opened my eyes and I was able to, to turn the, slow down the bike enough before I hit that guardrail. There was nothing but rocks in the air over that guardrail. So I think that there's definitely, there's definitely some reason I'm still here because I can't explain why at that moment I opened up my eyes. But I can tell you this, that um, you also got to know when to quit and when to stop and when to go to bed, you know, because you can push yourself right off the edge if you go too crazy hard. Set a big goal, incrementally aim towards closing the gap on the failure rate by putting in the work and then believing in yourself and try to block out all those demons that try to talk you out of it. You know, I was going to ask you about quiet faith. Those, quiet those demons. Stay in the moment. Quiet those demons. Yeah. Just keep moving. I wanted to ask you about faith a little bit too, Len. I mean, does you know, is there a higher power in your in your world? Uh, is it an inner power, or is it somewhere up there? I mean, do, is religion part of your life at all? So I was an altar boy when I was a kid, and uh, I used to serve six o'clock mass and. Uh, so I was always raised, you know, I was raised and confirmed as a Catholic, and but never really practiced. I mean, to me, um, the way I practice my my faith is through my actions, not mm-hmm. uh, not through introspection in in that space. And so for me, it's it's you know what I want to do with my time and how I want to spend it to you know to help my family, help my investors, help my kids, help my my employees and help other people. And that's hope camp. And again, I mean, my son's alive, right? He survived cancer. And uh, I feel like I've got a debt to repay on that. And uh, I'm happy to, happy to be part of that. I'm happy to still be involved in the lives of kids that are going through what my son went through. I can relate to the parents. I can relate to the kids. And so, you know, I survived that. Our family survived it. Not, not everyone that we, we, folk, we, we help in hope camp has that same result. But we try to give them hope every day that their their friends are going to be with them and they're going to, their good friends are going to help them get through what they're going through every, to the extent to which they can. So creating that connectivity is just makes me feel alive. And I think that uh, we all have an opportunity to give. My mom taught me when I was very young that you don't work all your life and then give your give your resources away. You you have a day you have an opportunity every single day to help other people every single day. You don't do one thing and then help people later. You help people every day. And that, and that stuck, you know, so that was the family I was raised in was we all have an opportunity to do that. So to me, it's so fulfilling to have the ability to be able to, to do that and, uh, and to share it. There's no, there's no doubt that, you know, I mean, I just, I got my health. I'll be 60. I just turned 61 and I feel good. Everything works. Nothing hurts. And uh, I crashed on my mountain bike two weeks ago and broke, broke a rib. But uh, so far, I'm able to run again. So oh. I still heal pretty quick. So 
I don't like to do, I don't, I haven't done that in a long time. So I'm trying to not to take too many stupid risks, but I do have some goals. I mean, I, I'd love to get those marathons done. I'd love to do more climbing, meet cool people. And, uh, and again, always grow. And I'm down here right now. I'm in the Dominican Republic. Um, my wife's from here. Really? House. I'm fixing it up. We started in, in, uh, in July. It's taken longer than I thought. So I need to come down here and kind of push things along a little bit. So, uh, so I'm, I'm fortunate. My kids are doing well. They're healthy and they're productive. And so, yeah, John, I mean, I, you know, I'm feeling very, very fortunate and love what I'm doing. I want to keep doing it. And like I said, I mean, I'm, I'm so blown away that you asked me to be part of this because I see the people you're interviewing and there are some amazing people. So much, so successful. Well, on that vein, relationships are key to the business and life success. And you've already referred to that. Your business and life activities have taken you worldwide. And I assume you've built a wide and varied network of people. Perhaps highlight some of the people that you've met and know, other than the ones you've already mentioned, that have had the biggest influence on your career and life. Well, yeah, that starts from day one, which is my, my parents, you know, which were, you know, just solid, solid people saved. We're always there for us, for everything, always in our corner, always there to support us and teach us the value of work, the value of helping each other. So, you know, those are my two idols, right? And my mom and my dad, obviously. Um, when I was in college, I met a professor from Bangladesh named Omar Farooq, who uh, always held me accountable to a standard that was higher than what I had for myself. I'll never forget him. He, he always expected more from me. That's pretty cool. You know, they meet a teacher that actually has that impact on you, you know. And, uh, he, and he pushed me to lead. He pushed me to take, a, to take a leadership role in undergrad. And I learned so much from that. I don't know, John, I, I think I, I just, there's so many people I meet every single day, you know, that I'm awed by in how, how they're able to keep it all together and to create impact and, uh, and, and to, to balance it all. And to me, the key is the balance, you know, I mean, nobody wants to be one dimensional, you know, and just be just working all the time and neglecting their families. You know, I mean, you, the key to me is the people I admire the most are the people that can, can raise a good, because ultimately, really, my most important job is, is being a father. I mean, there's nothing more important than that. Nothing. A good husband, but you can't be a good father if you're not a good husband, in my, in my opinion. Because when you're a good husband, you set a model for what your kids should expect from who they want to share their life with. So being a good husband, being a good father, being a good brother, being a good friend, you know, those are the keys. But your kids, you only have one shot with your kids. And so exactly. everything, my kids are everything and always doing everything I can to make sure that they have, we mow down the path for them, you know, and also hold them accountable too and instill values in them that I, I think are important, you know, which is humility and um, self-reliance and, uh, you know, being able to, you know, be, be confident in their decisions and, uh, mm-hmm. and, find, and find the path for them that gives them fulfillment uses the skills that they have and develop more skills. And so I think it's the key, John, you know, is to, you know, you gotta be, you can't, you know, I remember I read Rob Lowe's book. Rob Lowe has a great book called stories. I only tell my friends. And he's talking about sitting on the couch with his two kids, his teenage boys. He said, my two boys have learned nothing from what I've ever said to them. Nothing. They only learn from what I've done, what they've seen me do. 
And I think it's true. You have to be that guy. You have to act it every day, every interaction and how you treat other people. That's what your kids remember. You know that you've got some such successful kids. And I'm very fortunate too. Yep. I'm very fortunate. And they're, and they, they, they take their cues from you, you know? So that's the most important job, you know, is to, is to be a good partner, be a good family, person in your family. And, but, you know, but I mean, I'm so excited. I mean, I'm so excited, you know, for the next 10 years or more, you know, and keep having fun, cool people doing fun things. I have a wonderful team uh, in my company. Everyone owns their work and they give me the freedom to be able to do these fun things. I mean, you can't go out and go spend two weeks on a bicycle or three weeks in Antarctica without having exceptional people on your team that make good decisions and they know you, you, you trust them and they own their work. And uh, I think that's the key. You keep surrounding yourself with people like that. I think every person I think you've interviewed will probably say the same thing is that had it not been for the people that I surround myself with, I would not have the success I have. It doesn't happen by yourself. No question. It happens because no of question. commitment and the way you treat them and the, and they're part of your family and uh, you create a, a, a really good vision of where you want to go and they, and they feel the ownership of that and they want to help get there and they feel it's in their best interest to get there. They come to work every day. And now look at this, you know, who comes to work every day? Nobody comes to work every day, but they come to work every day in front of their, <laughs> their, their screen because they, the people that are succeeding here are the people that own what they do and they feel they're part of something that's bigger than them. And they feel like they're contributing in a way their talents to create output. Because, you know, my opinion is that the biggest thing that I've learned from COVID is that work is not a place where you do things. Work is, is, is the creation of, of productivity. It's, it's creation of things. So work is right. not a place. Work's not a place. Work's no, no longer a place you go to. Work is what you create and what you accomplish. And then we continue. We convene. It's interesting you say, yeah, it's interesting you say that, Len, because the real estate industry is at a, at a junction right now, juncture right now. And what you've just said is it doesn't matter where you are physically. You can create wherever you are. Like you're in the Dominican Republic right now and running two companies. So, uh, <laughs> and you can do that remotely. So you ask yourself, and I, and I didn't ask this question earlier, and I have for everybody else, what do you think the future is of the real estate industry? I mean, retail has gone through tremendous change and is continuing to change. Office, you know, are you going to come to the office every day? If not, you know, what, what's the need for space going forward? You know, in apartments, you you need more space for, your home office now. It's just all these things that have had these evolutionary things. Do you have an opinion on, on the real estate industry at all, Len, on what its future is? Well, I think a couple things. Number one is uh, I always ask myself, what if three years or two years from now, what do I wish I would have done more during COVID that I didn't do? Because mm-hmm. things will get back to more normal times. And uh, where are the opportunities today that, uh, that I'll miss? But also, where are the most fundamental forever changes? And I think what COVID has done is if you have the right people, you trust them way more than you ever have in the past because uh, you, you trust them to be productive. You trust them to own the outcome, and you trust them to, to have the uh, work ethic. 
to be able to give you a full day of work, whether that happens in, you know, six days, seven days, five days, three days, four days, whatever it is, right? But also I think that the future of real estate is the, I think the future of real estate is the future of collaboration. And what does collaboration need to look like going forward? Because let's face it, because of all the tools that we have today, the majority of the people that do what we do can do it any, almost anywhere. But collaborating through video is, is a very good substitute, but it's not the same thing. And the creativity tends to be more suppressed because you feel like you're imposing on people. Whereas if you're in the same physical environment, you can drop in on people socially or idea-wise. It's much more fluid. The question is, does it have to be five days a week? And I think that the answer is no. I think the other question is the stress level associated with commuting is going to shift dramatically. And people are, are going to realize that that takes such a toll doing the same pattern. So this is like the equivalent of the next industrial revolution in the way in which we produce, produce output. And I'm super excited about it. I really am because it creates more balance. People see their families. People have less stress. Some have more stress, obviously, depending upon what you're going through. But um, the environment's getting a break. So I think as we come out of this, I think that uh, office developers are going to have work to do. There's going to be a lot of repurposing. I think retail is constantly going to be changing. It was just a matter of when, though. We all knew that. But, you know, it's, it's just going to be very it's going to be very exciting. And, look, we all know that unless you adapt, you're dying. You know, you have to constantly adapt. I've had to do that with my business. And well, you, you have to be resourceful. You have to pick good people. You have to train them and, and, and trust them and, uh, and hold them accountable in different ways. But the paradigm that we knew growing up was you come in early, you leave late. And uh, that's kind of irrelevant right now. So put yourself in your 25-year-old body and yourself today. What advice would you give that person today if you were 25 years old? Yeah, I know. I wrote that down as a question. What advice do you give your 25-year-old self? You know, and uh, exactly. And I, I think that continue to be flexible. Look at this. I was a landscape architect. I mean, who would have ever figured the path? Because what I studied, uh, the, what I do now didn't doesn't didn't exist. So right. the key is the skills. So the 25-year-old self is keep getting skills, keep developing more skills, no matter what they are whether they're writing, communication skills, social skills, sales skills, problem-solving skills. Because in the end, really, when I went to architecture school, you learn to be a problem solver, and you learn to communicate, and you learn to have thick skin because you have to go through critiques where people tell you your designs are crap, and you have to recover from that and get over it. So you have to be resilient. You have to be creative. You have to be adaptive. And you have to constantly push yourself to learn new things and try new things. And not be afraid of doing and not being afraid to fail. You know, I mean, I always talk about failure in my story, in my book, especially because we fail a lot. And the key is the failures are just opportunities to figure out what went wrong. And one of the biggest compliments I get from my team is uh, when they have to tell me something that didn't go well, the reaction. And they always, they always thank me for my reaction by saying, wow, I didn't, you know, I didn't expect that reaction from you. Because typically when things go wrong, the first thing I ask is, okay, number one, do we have this exposure anywhere else where it can happen again somewhere else? So that's the first thing I ask. 
Number two is, uh, okay, so what, what do we learn from it? And then what can we, what do we, what do we have to change to make sure it doesn't happen again? And so let's audit where we are. So we, we know we're not exposed somewhere else for the same thing that just went wrong here. Let's find the fix and then let's implement it. And then let's keep moving, you know? And so no finger pointing, you know, no blame, no anger. It's like, we got to make sure that doesn't happen again, you know? And so I think that you take that mindset that the mistake sometimes is where you learn the most and yep. fix them. You patch not just that hole, but now you've just inspected the whole ship. And, uh, and so that the mistakes actually, if people aren't afraid to talk about them are really the, the, uh, the salve that helps you make, make things better for everywhere. And so that would be that. And if you don't make mistakes, it means you're not taking enough risk. And so, Exactly. You can't. I, I always tell people on my team, I'd rather you make a uh, hundred decisions and make eighty of them right than make ten perfect decisions. Mm-hmm. That, that's what I would tell my twenty-five-year-old self. It's okay to screw up. It's okay. It's okay to take risks. Try to mitigate your risk by thinking through all the possible outcomes before you jump off that that ledge or you get up. You know, start climbing that mountain. Do the training. Do the preparation. Think it through. Talk to other people. Ask them, what was it like when you climbed that mountain? What was it like when you did that bike race? What was it like, whatever, whatever it is, you know, when you decided to expand into that new territory or try that new product type, you know, talk to people. When pe- people are amazing how, how generous they are with their time and how much they'll share with you at no benefit to them. And that's the other thing I would also say to my 25-year-old self is give without expecting anything in return because it always comes back multiple. So just if someone asks for help, give them help. You can offer help, offer it. Don't ever do anything with the expectation of getting a benefit from it as a result of it because the, the world turns in a wonderful way and it always, always comes back to you in a positive way. So give without expectation and challenge and always don't be afraid to, don't be afraid to take risks where you might not end up well. And if you want to do something hard, tell everybody and pre-commit to it. That's a great one. So, Glenn, you've said probably a hundred things already that we could put on this next question. But uh, I assume that you can narrow it down to one. So the next question is, if you could post a statement on a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say? Be fearless. Be fearless. That's great. That's great. So, Len, this has been an amazing discussion. I knew it would be because you're such a special person. There's not many Len Forkuses out there. I think there might be one in the world, another one. Maybe, maybe. I don't know. But you're pretty unique. And I really appreciate your time and uh, input today. And I think our listeners are going to enjoy this one very much. Thank you. Well, John, thank you. And thank you for making this podcast. I mean, you're giving us a glimpse into the into the minds of some of the most respected people in our, in our region and in our industry, myself excluded. But thank you so much for doing this because uh, this is where inspiration comes from. So thank you so much for inviting me. So we just listened to Len Forkus, who is an extraordinary human being in many, many ways, uh, forming two companies and doing athletic feats that are beyond nature <laughs> in performance. So we're going to now transition to the postscript that I had for each episode recently. And so I'm introduced my cohort, Tom Amos. Tom? Hey, John. How are you today? Good. 
How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. So, Len, the 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 listeners of the podcast probably can't you know can't see this. Obviously, they're going to be listening. Len, I was surprised we we get to you, you do these recordings live, so I get to review the video. The guy looks fantastic for sixty one. When he said he was sixty one years old during the podcast, I, I, I was surprised, I was shocked, really looking at him. But uh, I guess all you have to do is, you know, bike across the United States and and do a few marathons each year, and uh, and you can look like that when you're sixty one as well. <laughs> he sleeps an average of four to five hours a night too, which is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, How he does it, I don't know. <laughs> I just don't. Uh, yeah. Really, really good guest. So I thought a good topic for us to cover that, that you and Len hit on, John, was, um, you know, we got New Year's coming up. And, you know, you and Len, and he was very big on kind of the, the power of letting other people know your goals and kind of how that holds you accountable to to do those goals. And actually, me and you, last week, we're, we're talking a little bit about, you know, reflecting on the year and, and goal setting. And it's true. I, I think that I find that that's a really powerful tool to, to let other people know your goals and have them participate in those. And it, it just makes you more accountable rather than kind of carrying that by yourself. What me and you were talking about was my involvement with this podcast. And, you know, at the beginning of COVID, i was finding myself with some extra time. And I said, you know, what, what do I want to do with this extra time? And I think that the reason that a lot of my time and effort went into this podcast above other things that I, ideas that I was bouncing around at the time was just the accountability of having you and talking with you and, and checking in with you on a regular basis about the podcast kind of hold you uh, more accountable to, to follow through with those things versus other things that I was just kind of setting out on a path on, you know, by myself, you know, it's easier to say, well, maybe I'll get to that. But uh, I thought that was a really good topic that you guys covered. Len is uh, very organized and very structured, and he has to be to do the things that he's been able to accomplish. His relaxation is running a marathon. So <laughs> he's a very intense guy, and he's very sincere, but he's very disciplined because you can't start and run two companies and do the athletic training that he does and then also spend time with his family and he spends quality time with them. I mean, he climbed Mount Kilimanjaro with his son and, you know, I mean, he engages them, his daughter and son into as much as he can. His son now is working for him at Milestone. So, you know, he's, you know, so he integrates all these things together and his nonprofit that he built, he, you know, it's because of his son's situation initially. And it's now grown to a national organization with thousands of children benefiting from it. And he just has this vision of taking something that happens to him personally and, and making it big. But accountability is critical to him. So he makes the commitment when he was on the bike and he calls somebody on the road when he was going in on his long trip and he dedicated one day to one of his people mm-hmm. and his book talks about that. So he has in his book chapters of each day uh, on his 11 day journey across the country. And he has a dedication for a, one of the cancer patients that's in the hope camp that he dedicates his day to. And when he's in pain or agony on his ride, 
he thinks about how much pain and agony that that child has dealing with cancer. And that's how, what gets him through it. And to, to me, that's a real discipline to be able to realize that it, you're not doing it just for yourself. You're doing it for somebody else that you care about. The other takeaway I had from the podcast was, you know, Len being ahead of his time, so to speak, on the remote learning and setting up the organization to, to have, for, for people to have access prior to and, and how applicable that is for, for all of America right now and all the world going through remote learning. And I actually was looking, I've got statistics here for us, John, from the uh, U.S. Census Bureau that says that um, this is recently published in, in regards to COVID that 64% of homes in the United States where the average income is, is less than 100000 a year, only 64% of people have consistent access to internet at the home compared to 86% for homes that make more than 100000 So, you know, we're, we're seeing that there's kind of this digital inequality across the United States and, and the impact that that has on education. I know that it, we've had a lot of conversations, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners have as well, about kind of furthering that gap and remote learning and the impact that it's having on that. You know, hopefully we're, we're, we're getting this stage behind us, but, you know, I, I just wanted to talk through that, John, with you and, and see what your thoughts were on, on kind of education and where things have been and where they're headed regarding remote learning. Agreed on your supposition here. There is a divide. Len, in his business, obviously, with uh, Milestone Communications, is started with working with public systems and being able to bring towers and bring communication to more people at steady pace. We talked a little bit about 5G, which is the new technology that's coming out for cable, which will bring more opportunities for people to have access at closer place at a higher quality. So I think what happens is oftentimes with technology, you know, the cutting edge technology people get because they want it and they have the, the means to get it. But what happens is it brings the whole, it like rises all boats. So in essence, it makes it easier for people to have access for even lesser technologies at, at a lower cost because it'll drive the cost down. So I think what's going to happen over time is this, this, this divide will, will, the gap will fill in. Yeah. But the, you know, there's a group of people that don't really care about internet access too. The extreme elderly, for instance, and children under a certain age that aren't quite digitally caught up yet. And then, then there's some people that are wilderness driven and aren't really interested in being online and don't really care about it. But I think, you know, American society is moving towards a digital lifestyle and everyone, you know, most business today. I mean, you look at the top 10 companies, at least half a dozen of those are tech oriented companies, which is driven by the Internet. So it is the future. And everything that we do will be integrated some way and eventually. So I agree. So from an educational standpoint, Len wanted to bring that the technology to children initially 
that were distressed because of his son's situation. He expanded that and is continuing to grow it nationally for, for children that may not have access. Now, as you suggested, it's primarily for income challenged people that may not afford, be able to afford to have the technology because today most people with means all you have to do is set up a, you know, an iPhone in a classroom and you could see, so you could have a, a, a FaceTime call with, uh, with the teacher and, and she could put that, you know, facing the classroom and see the kids simultaneously because the cameras are so good today. Mm-hmm. So the question is, you know, what is Len doing? I haven't seen the technology of what he's doing lately. But I would think he's aiming at groups that don't have that capability I just mentioned, yeah. uh, you know, either in the classroom or at home. So I would think that would be what he's aiming at. But I haven't gotten into that detail with him. But the idea of digital learning, we all learned a lot this last year <laughs> and still yeah. learning about it. And the question is, has it helped the educational process? Has it hurt? educational process? What has it done to the educational process? Has it stimulated children to want to learn more because they're learning in a different way? Or is it, you know, are teachers trying to dictate, or is this person on for this amount of time that I need him, to, need him or her to be on and be in their seat, in essence, instead of learning something? You know, just more of an attendance thing as opposed to getting something out of what they're teaching. Right. So that's the question. And, you know, I'd be curious as to how they're evaluating the learning process during this, uh, this remote learning experiment that the world, the country has had. Yeah. Well, you got to figure in the short term that this has been a really tough year on, on children that are there in school going through these hiccups of, of working through remote learning but, you know, hopefully, you know, this is fast-tracked a lot of things as far as the use of technology where where when they do get back to being in school, maybe there's, you know, there's some positive benefits such as, you know, we had a snow day last week and I was talking with someone that their child's uh, private school has now said that now they have a solution to, to snow days where they won't have snow days in the future. They'll just be able to teach those kids from, from home rather than uh, having them come in. So, you know, hopefully there's some good positive um, things like that that come out of this. But, man, it's, I'm sure that it's, it's been really tough on a lot of families here the past year. It, it changes the model. And yeah. so can the teachers and the students adapt to this new reality? And it, it begs the question, you know, what are the benefits of going to the classroom and being together with students. So I'll just cite one story. Our neighbor is a kindergarten teacher at a private school. This year, they cut the classroom from 20 with two teachers to 10 with one. She said she doesn't like it, and it is live, and they have a larger setting because they're spreading the kids out physically. And she tried remote. They tried remote for a little bit, and it just wasn't the same. With kindergartners, it was really yeah. hard to do remote learning. Yeah. And, the other, and the socialization for small children is really important for them to understand how to share and how to you know, work together and behave together in, in groups. And 
I think small group performance is really a critical part of uh, of life. I think you know it, it trans transfers all the way up into your profession and learning it. You learn those things in kindergarten, typically how to share and how to trade things. And <laughs> uh, there's a book I'll never forget. You know the five it was it ten things you learn in kindergarten? I think I read someday. It was a fun book, but yeah. boy, is it applicable to life. <laughs> yeah. So you know, I think this remote learning thing is, is a big experiment. The question is, where is it in a child's life that uh, remote learning is equivalent to maybe in-class aspects? So to me, there's probably positives and negatives for both types of learning. And I think the application of that will probably change over time. And we'll be looking at hybrid models of that, just like the workplace. We'll see hybrid models of being at home and in the, in, in the, in the workplace. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, good. Well, that's that's all I got today. Well, thank you, Tom, and thank you, listeners. And uh, I hope you enjoyed this uh, episode. And uh, we will have another one in in two weeks. With uh, uh, my guest for that episode will be uh, Dan Matthews, who is the commissioner of the GSA until uh, the next administration starts next month. Okay, thank you.